Hey, welcome to the 129th episode of Two Writers Singing Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to political analysis to Mad Magazine essays to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode features Jerry Brewer, the excellent Washington Post columnist and one of the best sports opinion writers in America. Jerry is the latest star in the Post sports pages, and his approach to the 2019 column is really unique, interesting, and introspective. And it's right now, the two writers, Sling and Yang. All right, Jerry, you're the first Western Kentucky grad I've had on this podcast. So I think in the world of sports where everybody's making history, every time someone throws a strike the first time he faced a guy from Detroit in the middle of the fifth inning on a snowy day, we're making history because it's a it's a Western Kentucky grad and a Delaware grad speaking on a mediocre journalistic podcast. So mazel tov on making history. It's a big day for you, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, it's even bigger because... My wife has been like, you got to get on Jeff Perlman's podcast. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, she's kind of a, a journalism geek like I am. And I'm like, well, honey, I'm not just going to like request that Jeff uh, interview me. Uh, it'll, <laughs> it'll happen in time. Don't worry. Another thing we now have in common, me, you and your wife, we're all losers. <laughs> I'm fascinated by something. You, uh, your columnist with the Washington Post, been there for four years. You're in the midst of, one of the worst football seasons I've ever seen. And it's interesting because the Redskins aren't one of the worst, whatever, 10 teams I've ever seen. But it's such a mess. Everything is a mess. I mean, I, you know, obviously everything is a mess. And I wonder, when you're a columnist, do you relish these situations? Or is there a certain approach you have to have so it doesn't just, it's not just you piling on a steaming heap of, you know, manure? I, I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. Uh, we relish, I think, as, as writers, the, the extremes, right? You know, if you're going to be good, be really damn good. If you're going to be bad, just be absolutely terrible. Uh, it's hard when you get the eight and eight teams and it's hard when you're really kind of just trudging through nuance, um, to, to find really sharp things to write about. So I think that the fact that, this is this is completely blown up in their face, makes it a more interesting story than if they were seven and nine once again. Uh, the hard thing with them is they've been at this for 20 years under Dan Snyder. And how do you keep that story fresh? It's just this never ending thing. No matter what they do, it doesn't work. And not only do they fail, they fail dramatically. You have to go to the thesaurus and keep looking up different words for dysfunction. It's hard to keep telling the same story, essentially, in a fresh way. All right. So how actually do you tell the same story in a fresh way? Well, I think the characters change. And, you know, for me, you know, everything about journalism for me is people. You know, I, I really just keep it as simple as um, a person is doing something that is going to affect a bunch of people. Um, something is happening to a person of prominence. I try to keep it that simple. And it's like, okay, well, who are the major players here? What's at stake? Um, and how is it going to affect others? And I think, uh, the fact that the characters keep changing, except for Daniel Snyder and Bruce Allen over the last 10 years, uh, that helps you 
find some new nuggets. Uh, so it just, it kind of feels like it's the same movie, but at least, uh, you know, George Clooney is in it instead of Brad Pitt this time. And, uh, there's just something about it that, that, that makes it a little bit easier to tell when you're really invested in folks. And it's just kind of like if you change the characters in Groundhog's Day, but these characters don't expect the same outcome and everybody else who's watching the show knows exactly how it's going to end. That sort of tension in people's optimism makes it a little bit easier to tell the story in a certain way. You covered a game I would have loved to cover. And I'm actually being sincere at 1 million percent when I say that. You were at the game when the, when the Dolphins and the Redskins, both winless, played on uh, October 13th. Um, and your headline was, the Redskins beat the Dolphins, but there are no winners here. It was in Florida, and you wrote, good news, or something like that. The Washington Redskins are not the worst team in the NFL. Uh, to be exact, they are one point and two yards better than the Miami Dolphins. They remain bad and quite hazardous to your eyes. But as long as the Dolphins reside in tank mode, they are blocked from reaching the bottom of despair. I'm not sure whether it qualifies as comforting to realize in nail-gnawing victory that you're even closer to the absolute misery than imagined. The Dolphins, who have traded away their best players over the past six weeks, aren't really trying to win. Consider them effortlessly terrible. The Redskins, on the other hand, exerted themselves quite a bit in losing their first five games. I freaking love this column, first of all. There's a 17-16 Redskins victory over a, a team that's deliberately tanking. First of all, was it an automatic that you were going to that game? Did you have to Do you say, look, I really want to go to this game? And what are you looking for when you go to a game between two crap, crap teams? The whole thing is different for me this year because the post has adjusted my role to a, a national sports columnist role. So I actually live out of the D.C. area now. I'm, I'm back in uh, Seattle, uh, which is interesting. Um, but I told them, you know, there, there's a couple things. I wanted to keep a foothold uh, with some of the local teams so that when big, big stuff happens, I'm not just not paying attention and I have no feel for the characters and um, I haven't been around them. And so I think we thought going in, all right, well, if the Nats finally happen to make a run past the NLDS, then uh, you should probably go to Miami because a lot of the resources locally will be towards the Nats. Um, so before the year started, I'm like, all right, great. It's going to be a trip to Miami, sunshine, uh, week six. You know, <laughs> maybe the, maybe the Redskins are two and four, three and three. Maybe the Dolphins are two and three or whatever. Uh, it'll be a decent game. I don't mind taking, uh, the six and a half hour flight to Miami for that. Uh, I had no idea what I was getting into. And then as the season started, I'm like, you know, this game could be really, really absurd. <laughs> and right. there was a part of me that was like, I want them both to be winless. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's just an interesting look at. Uh, you know, where two teams on the lower end of the NFL are right now. Uh, the fact that Gruden got fired, you know, earlier the same week and the Redskins were in this transition, I think just made the story that much better. By the time I got on the plane, uh, Friday night to go to Miami, I was really looking forward to it. I, I actually, uh, I think that one of the best sports writers in the country at writing absurdity is Chuck Culpepper. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I, I was just kind of texting back and forth with Chuck, uh, just about how excited I was. You know, he asked me if I had read, uh, Dave Barry's little 
short column on uh, how this was just this great threat to the Dolphins going 0-16. And we just talked about, you know, just little things about uh, how I might handle it, what I might look out for. I was thinking about going, you know, if they hadn't fired Gruden, I might have been even more grand in the way that that, that I wrote it. But uh, by the end of it, I was I was pretty happy. I mean, for a column that, you know, you wind up writing in 75 minutes after the game and you adjust a little bit of it because of what the game told you as opposed to how you wanted to write it going in. I was, I was very happy with it. So for every young journalist who dreams, every young sports writer who dreams of one day covering a Super Bowl or a World Series or an all-star game or so-and-so's 3,000th hit, how do you explain the appeal? Like the, the, cause I feel it too. I would rather cover this game. I swear to God, than cover a Super Bowl. I would rather cover a game with the worst two teams <laughs> in a half empty stadium, blah, blah, blah. Then the Super. How do you explain that? What is the appeal of that kind of game? Well, it's different, right? I think for for both of us, uh, you know, we've been to you know enough Super Bowls and Final Fours and World Series and Olympics and NBA Finals and um, all of those things, and uh, those events are just so bigger than life that you can't really reach out and touch them. Like you're you're trying to you're trying to make those big events small enough to where you can write about it small enough to where you can report to it uh and and not not just have it be um just just gangbang journalism and uh this is just something that no one is particularly excited about this game uh there's not going to be a ton of reporters around uh so you can move freely uh, and trying to report and, and tell whatever story or column you're writing. And it's just absolutely different. Like we're, we're, we're so accustomed, you know, especially with, with how we cover major college and professional sports to really only focus on the winning. And when a team starts to lose, uh, you start pulling back resources. But a lot of times when a team is at its worst, those are the best stories to tell because it reveals, you know, character or lack there of character. It, it shows a lot of different things. It's a window. It's, it's very insightful. And to have one that is just incredibly bizarre. It's really hard to win five games in a row in the NFL. It's just as hard to lose five games in a row in the NFL. Right. And to know that the Redskins and the Dolphins were coming at it from totally different angles. Um, Redskins thought, you know, they fooled themselves into believing that they could be good this year. And this is a complete shock to them. The Dolphins, you know, decided just before the season started, ah, let's just make this year about accumulating draft picks. And we really want the number one pick. Maybe it's Tua. Maybe it's somebody else that will draft. And we're just going to rebuild this thing. It's the right time. we got a first-year head coach. And let's just punt on 2019 and hope that we can – be good by 2021. Uh, and so I think when you just, when you combine just these incredibly weak forces, for lack of a better word, uh, and you put them, you know, in a stadium that's dead in a city that never supports, uh, teams when they're this bad, it was just a great window into something different. And we're used to, Sundays in the NFL feeling so grand. 
This one didn't feel that way at all. And it just allows you fresh way to tell stories. It's like you're looking at it with fresh eyes and you're energized because it's not something that we cover the majority of those 16 Sundays. I used to love when I was covering baseball, you know, people would say, oh, the World Series, that's all. And I'd be like, no, nah, give me, give me Indians, Royals, both teams, 19 games out in July and a half empty stadium. And some guy just called up from AAA who's making his first start in left field for the Royals. Like, give me that guy's story. Like that guy's aw shucks moment about being called up for the first time. Uh, the kid grew up without a mom or the kid blah, 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 has seven dogs. Or To me, those are the reasons I actually went into this business. Oh, I agree. Uh, and, and we get so far from it now. And access is terrible. Uh, the, the media training that professional athletes get most of the time is just all about not telling you anything. And there's just a natural level of skepticism. I think uh, just the... Uh, uh, you know, in some ways, um, the reporting skills have advanced. Um, in other ways, just the fundamentals are just incredibly lacking. You know, it reminds me of, of, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I watch an NBA game and, you know, a guy can shoot it from 30 feet, but he's a 60% free throw shooter. Hey, you're just like, what, 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 what is this? Um, uh, how can you be? Um, so incredibly skilled yet so unskilled. Right. Um, and I think that that's kind of like the environment that, that, that we're around a lot of times, um, with major sports. And, uh, you know, you're always looking for these opportunities to tell a story differently, um, to have some intimacy. I mean, that's a big thing for me, Jeff, is just, um, intimacy in what you're writing. Um, and the easiest way to get that is one-on-one -on -one, uh, with the subject and to be able to just tell something that's specific. You know, everything is just so general now that it, it frustrates the hell out of me. The Washington Post last year, you guys ran a, uh, ran a really long story about um, Alex Smith and when he was coming to D.C. And he gave your newspaper, I think, 10 minutes. And I feel like there was a time when if the Washington Post came in and said, we're doing a story about Alex Smith and it's going to be a huge story and we have our football writer doing it and blah, 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 they would give you two hours or three hours or whatever. Does that not exist anymore if you're writing about a professional athlete? Are you not getting, even though you're the Washington Post, are you not getting an hour one-on-one -on -one sit down with an athlete? Well, it depends on, on you know, which organization it is and, and how connected they are. You know, I mean, in that case, um, you know, it was Kimberly Martin and yep. she did a fantastic job writing around it because she's just so ridiculously talented. But obviously there's more of an adversarial relationship between the, the Redskins and the Washington Post because we've had to call them on their BS so many times. So that's tough. But yeah, in general, you don't get as much time as you used to, but there's still moments. You know, I think about, uh, Rick Mace doing a season long series on, Maryland basketball a couple of years ago. They even let him ride the team plane. He had really good access into that team. Uh, but yeah, it just, it continues to get harder and harder to create those moments. And uh, even when you do, you don't get what you used to. You know, it used to be call up Georgetown and say, you know, you want to do 
this big piece on Patrick Ewing, they make it happen. Now it's like, you know, it's more often like, okay, we can give you 20 or 30 minutes. And it's like, okay, well, this is going to fundamentally change the way that we tell stories. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine. And today you made a puppet. Her name is Henrietta. She's a therapist and a professional expert. So uh, what does her voice sound like? It sounds like this. And what would Henrietta say if I told her 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, has created a special Fred Bassano Oakland Invaders jersey just for her in her size? She would be super excited and scream and yell and give you a big hug and go to 503-sports.com to buy even more stuff. Yeah, uh, they don't make jerseys for puppets. Well, that was a tease. What are the things the best journalists you've come across have? Like what is in their arsenal when it comes to their makeup and their approach and their way of thinking of this profession? I think uh, compassion is the strongest skill that I see. And when, when, when I think about the journalists that I most admire or that, that, um, are most acclaimed or whatever, there is a compassion to their journalism. They, they not only see stories that other people don't, they feel stories that other people don't, if you know what I mean. And it's through that, that emotion, you know, uh, that level of humanity, uh, that they develop a, a, a care for a certain subject and it really helps bring it to light. So much of what we do is, is subtle, right? And, and you, you can just see it in the way that they, that they phrase a sentence or, or just, um, the passion with which that they're talking about something. Um, and so, so much of that comes from, I think, a compassionate place as opposed to just this great intellectual place. Do you feel like these are skills you can develop? Can someone, over time, I want to be a journalist and then over time learn to be compassionate and empathetic. Yeah, I tend to think you have that or you don't. Um, and, and there, there are other really good journalists who don't approach it from a compassionate standpoint and you can see it in the way that they write. Um, I think if you, if you want to be as well rounded as you could be, you know, I mean, I always look at it like, I mean, you, you want the world to light up in a certain way. So that, so that you can, you can get at some of these stories. And so I think if you want to be as well rounded as you can be, you need that compassion. You need to have that empathy. Uh, but there are plenty of people who are highly successful who don't have it because they have some other superpower, you know, and I think a lot of us are, are introverted in a certain way, but we, we, we care and we're just so damn curious. And that's how we get at stories as opposed to, you know, being someone who, when you walk into the room, the room is going to tilt your way and people are going to talk to you because you have such a vibrant personality. Uh, but I think more, more often than not, people want to talk to you because they know that you really care about what they're talking about. Actually, I've always thought that one of the keys, and it doesn't get spoken of that often, is it helps if you're a person who enjoys listening more than talking. Like if you would rather hear someone tell their story than be the one telling your story. Yes, absolutely. I've never, I mean, I never in my life just had a bad first date for that reason. You know, I've always 
been curious. I, I want to connect with someone. I want to ask them a ton of questions. I want to find out about who they are. And I genuinely care. I mean, that's the way I understand the world or try, try to understand the world is one person at a time. What, what do you really care about? How do you see this? I said so much of, of what we do is about, you know, other people who understand certain things at a higher level teaching us so that we can relay it to a mass audience. I don't like the dinner party. You know, it's like four people talking in a circle and it's all surfacy. Like that bores the hell out of me. Um, to the point where my wife like to challenge me, always ask me questions when we're in a situation like that. She's like, at the end of the night, I'm going to ask you if you had any good conversations <laughs> and uh, you better work at this because I know how you are. You know, you'll go and you'll check scores or you'll just talk about sports the whole time. So she really challenges me that way to kind of get in there. I'd much rather talk to someone one-on-one -on -one about something of substance than to do the small talk. I mean, I'm, I'm terrible at small talk. It'd be amazing to get like 20 people who work in this profession and talk to them about how they handle dinner parties. I've actually never thought of it before. I'm like you. I freak. I hate small talk with every part of my body. And a lot of times when I'm on a plane and someone asks what I do for a living, I always say plumber or electrician or something <laughs> not to be, I don't think I'm any, I don't think I'm anything. Right. But I, um, I don't want to spend two hours talking about like the Redskins. I want to know what's the grossest thing they've ever seen in the elevator. You know, like I don't want to talk about the Yankees or talk about their golf game. I end up being the weird guy. Yeah. And it's fine for me, you know, as long as, as long as I'm in a situation where I can ask a ton of questions and the person is interesting enough to keep my attention, I'm great. You're at a dinner party. Hey, this is Jerry. He's a columnist for the Washington Post. Oh, hey. Haskins. So what do you think? Haskins. Are you good in that conversation or are you bad in that conversation? I'm good in that conversation because like, that's just my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And I can talk about that all day long if that's what you want to know. And it like allows me to not have to have some of those other interactions that just drive me crazy. How about that Haskins? Huh? <laughs> Come on. It's going to be good. Big arm. <laughs> I hate those conversations. I'm always like, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just the plumber, man. We're just the plumber. I don't know. <laughs> um, I always ask people for their favorite stories that they've written and things that stand out. And you sent me um, a piece you wrote 11 years ago when you were at the Seattle Times. And it was a part of a series of prayer for Gloria. It's really, I mean, I knew nothing about this and I'm fascinated by this. You basically, you were a columnist for the uh, sports columnist for Seattle Times. Uh, Gloria's father is a high school basketball coach. And you think you're doing a piece basically about the high school basketball coach. And there's this, this girl who has terminal cancer, you end up doing this lengthy, lengthy series of beautiful profiles on her. She had terminal cancer, 11 years old. Gloria and her family, Doug and Kristen, her, her parents, they felt that somehow a miracle was going to come out of this situation. Not necessarily that she was going to be healed. They didn't know, but they felt like there was a purpose to her life. And they were kind of searching for what this purpose was as they were going through their darkest hour. And so followed her around, followed the entire family around for the last six months of Gloria's life and did a series. You know, I would write, uh, you know, every three weeks or so on average. I think it was maybe 13 parts or something. Uh, and it was really about the power of faith that, that, that was ultimately what we were exploring. 
And it was interesting because, you know, you've seen a lot of stories about uh, someone who's battling cancer um, and, and, and you're trying to highlight, you know, how vicious the disease is in hopes that people will donate money or whatever to, to, to help the process of finding a cure. You know, in this case, like the medical drama was was the uh, stuff that was in the background. And what was really in the forefront was the faith. And there was always that question of when she passed away, were you still going to believe in God as much as you had? You know, you're praying every night. Um, you're seeing all these amazing things happen. You're seeing so many people reflect on their own lives and their own faith. But when she's not there as the inspiration, then what happens? I always knew that was going to kind of be the end uh, of the series. and. What I loved about it, Jeff, is it's such a hard thing, and there's uh, you're really exploring what people believe as opposed to something more concrete. Uh, it's the story that just sticks with me. You know, I mean, I look back; I was twenty, I was still single then. Karen and I had just started dating. I was twenty nine years old. In some ways, I wish that that story had come along later in my life when I was more polished. But uh, it, it's the thing that I'm still the proudest of, and it's the story that stays with me the most. I find it really fascinating when you're doing a story and it causes yourself not just to look at the subject, but also to look at sort of inside yourself and how, I mean, for you specifically, how faith sort of impacts your life. Your grandfather was a Baptist minister. You were late, raised with religion. So when you're doing a story like this and a series of stories like this, how much of yourself goes into it? Do you have to have sure. some distance between you and the family, you and this girl? Um, emotional, can you allow yourself to get? How much can you throw yourself into it and still be a journalist? Yeah, that was what was interesting because I was encouraged, uh, you know, in trying to figure out what story I was going to tell, how, how to tell it the proper way. Um, Former Pulitzer Prize winner, you know, professor at, at Missouri. Uh, she'd worked at, at the Seattle Times for a, a good while. Um, a really good friend, Jackie uh, Banachinsky, advised me, you know, throughout this process to help me really um, see the story and figure out the proper way to tell it. And her, her thing was, you can't be detached on this one. You're going to have to get as close as you possibly can get and still be able to to write the story in an objective tone. She was like, you got to keep a basically a daily journal, and they should post it online uh, while you're telling this story. And that can be the outlet for you to separate, you know, between what you're writing and what you're feeling. You know, so that was a big part of that series as well. It was more intimate than ever. I'm a human being, and you know, I really felt and, and, and cared a great deal for the Strauss family. And that was just a, I mean, it was an incredible experience. It was, it was so deep, so emotional, so sad, but yet also so uplifting. That's another, it's a moment, one of those moments that, uh, you know, changes how you think about what we do. I felt like it was in some sense, the, the, the realest moment I've ever had as a journalist, because you had to admit to the public, like, hey, this whole journey is affecting me deeply, uh, but I still have a job to do. 
you know, objectivity is not being robotic. Objectivity for us is having the professionalism to take these things and set them aside as much as we possibly can to do the job. You had a point in one of these stories that I found really interesting where you said, um, more than four years ago, Gloria was diagnosed with neuroblastoma, a rare childhood cancer that is supposed to kill her. Gloria believes God will heal her because of a voice her mother, Kristen Strauss, heard before the journey even began. And then I tells, when I heal her, I will change the lives of many. Kristen says God was speaking to her. The Strausses trust those words. So the girl ends up dying. And I feel like we have an interesting human something in us where, well, this is meant to be because I heard this and then it doesn't work out. And we'll say, well, what I really didn't realize was the lesson is this. Was there ever a moment when this girl passed and people are like, wait a second, we heard the voice. She wasn't supposed to die. It was not supposed to be this way. Uh, yeah, I remember an email and I remember the subject line. Yeah, this was in between the time that she passed away and I'd written the story and, and then I was preparing to write one more thing at her funeral. And um that the subject line was Gloria got hosed. And um the guy just really wanted me to explain this whole thing to him. Like, you know, I thought that like this was like the live recording of an actual miracle. Yeah. And that she was gonna be healed and you were gonna write this amazing piece one day. God screwed her. What happened? And um, it's 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 uh, you know you write it in such a way where you're just saying this family believes this. And uh, you know I turned down maybe the the uh, the skeptical butt um, in the whole series and said let's just follow them and let's just see what happens. And we'll get to the butt uh, when it's time to get to the butt at the very end. And when that happened, it was like I did you know I did feel like that I had this. This, uh, I had to explain to people what had happened. But one thing that was interesting, you know, the last six weeks or so of her life, you know, things had taken a turn and she was, um, in the hospital the entire time. And there was just this, uh, gradual process of sort of, un of the whole family, of the parents in particular, understanding, you know, that, that this miracle that they wanted, uh, Chances were it wasn't going to happen. And so I was able to kind of look at like the way that they talked about it and how, you know, the priest and other spiritual advisors were talking to them about it. Um, and a lot of it shifted and we felt the shift in the series as well. One of the things they had this conversation about how Jesus is the healer and Jesus is the healing. Um, and so then it takes you to this other spiritual level of, um, when I heal her, um, you know, and, 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 and in the, in the most religious sense, you know, the healing is the ultimate healing. You know, you get to go to heaven and live forever. It, it became more about that. And you see the difficulty there because that is so religious and so spiritual that it's hard to explain to people who are looking at it in this, you know, logical you know, black and white manner. And so it made for, Kind of this, this unfulfilling ending in a lot of ways. Some people hated it and other people understood it. For me as the storyteller, the fact that there was like not this neat and tidy ending, that was the whole point. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved that it was so open ended and it came back to, 
you know, the whole series was about the power of faith. In the darkest moment, what will you believe? And they had their dark moment, and they came out of it, and they really celebrated her life as this, you know, homegoing. That was that was interesting to me. I mean, that was that journey was worthwhile. But it's hard because you don't get like this classic movie ending where everything is tied up for you. It comes back to that same thing, like, do you choose to believe or not? Yeah, it was a great freaking story and a great series. Listen, I appreciate. I'm glad your wife's. You're what you're going to be able to say. You're what you know. You can cross one off the uh, the wife bucket list. You got to appear on my mediocre podcast. <laughs> so everything in the world has worked out quite well. I appreciate the conversation. I want to thank today's guest, Jerry Brewer, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Jerry on Twitter at Jerry Brewer and read his work in the Washington Post. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the Dowsing MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.